Please join me for a word of prayer. Oh God, take my words and speak through them. Take our hearts and think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In your sermon notes, you see that Marshall McClellan is our guest preacher. On Friday afternoon, I received a phone call from Marshall expressing a concern that he possibly was exposed to the coronavirus, and we thought it best uh, for him not to be with us this morning. I'm disappointed, Marshall's a great preacher, and uh, I look forward to having him with us in the future. It's an important passage we have this morning, uh, Matthew chapter 16, midway through Matthew's gospel. As we think about this passage, let me explain it. I will explain it under three headings. Those headings are what Peter says about Jesus. We're going to learn something about Christ. And then what Peter, Jesus says about his church. We're going to learn something about the nature of Christ's church. And then we're going to learn something about, and then we'll see what Jesus says about Peter. We're going to learn something about the leadership that God Christ sets up for his church. So let's jump right in. Have the passage out in front of you. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea and Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And his disciples respond that some say you are a prophet. A prophet is someone who had a keen insight into the things of God. So they list a number of people that Jesus may be Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then the question to the gathering, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's almost as if you can see the question jumping off the page to us today. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter's response, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Just a little bit about that title, the Christ, the Son of God. That's a very, very hopeful title. The Christ or the Messiah, Messiah, some translations will have, is the title of someone, give, the title given to someone who would come and rescue God's people. And Peter identifies Jesus as that long awaited Savior. Jesus is not one prophet among many, but he is the one to whom all the prophets point. And Jesus congratulates Simon for his insight. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, or son of Jonah. Bar simply means son of. Blessed are you. Now, just let's unpack that phrase, you are the Christ, a little bit more. There's no doubt that when Peter said this, he and any other man, woman, or Jewish child living at the time would have thought about the term Christ in terms that were largely political and largely national. Uh, the Jewish people were now, at this time, a conquered people. Maybe you've seen the little mini-series, The Chosen. It's a great little story of the life of Christ, and it depicts this dynamics of the Jewish people in the time of Christ. Fiercely independent, uh, yet under the thumb of Roman rule who's more interested in placating and maintaining the peace than in anything else. When Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God, he had in his mind someone who would deliver God's people by restoring the nation to its independence and its glory. His hopes for the Messiah's deliverance were hopes that were limited to this world. But his hopes were misguided. This Christ will not lead his people in military conquest, so he moved from point one, Peter's declaration of Christ to what Jesus says about his church. 
And look at verse 18 as Jesus describes the mission of his people, the conquest of his people. He says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. We'll return to that in just a moment. And the conquest of the people of God. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Note, as Jesus describes the conquest of his people, he does not say the gates of Rome are not going to stand in front of you. He says the gates of hell are not going to stand against you. Now put yourself in the shoes or the sandals of the case may be of a disciple at that time. Here they've seen a man who is unique with unique authority over the body, able to heal, authority over the wind, able to calm the storms, and a unique authority to teach and command a crowd. Surely uh, this was the man that they pinned their hopes for national restoration on. Their hopes were understandably high. But Jesus immediately describes the conquest of his people, not in political terms, not in this terms of this world, but in spiritual or otherworldly terms. The gates of hell, not the gates of Rome. Let's look at that word hell just a little bit closer. It's not a great translation. When we hear the word hell, what we think of is the place where the devil lives and with all the demons. That's not a great translation, although that place is depicted in the Bible and we believe that such a place exists. That's simply not the place that's described here. Here the word is Hades, the Greek word Hades, which was also translated in Hebrew as Sheol, which is not the place where the devil lives, but instead simply the repose of the dead. The gates of hell in verse 18 represent the imprisoning power of the grave. And Jesus states here that the imprisoning power of the grave will not stand before the people of God. On Monday of this week, a member of our church succumbed to a month-long fight with COVID-19 and he now rests in peace. Many of you prayed for Daniel's recovery, and many of us are grieved by his death. A Christian's grief is never a grief without hope. Jesus Christ rose from the grave on the third day. He walked back through that gate which had always been closed, that gate that separates us from those whom we love. And just as Jesus walked back through the, that gate, we believe that all who have placed their trust in him will do the same. At the conclusion of every funeral service, we say these words, all of us go down to the dust, yet even at the grave, we sing our song. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The word hallelujah is a shout of victory. Is there anything more incongruous than a shout of victory at the gate of the grave? Not for the follower of Christ. The gates of the dead did not prevail against Jesus, and the gates of the dead will not prevail against his church. 
So point one, Peter's declaration of Christ, of Jesus, you are the Christ, which he envisioned in earthly, not spiritual terms. Point number two, the nature of the church, especially its conquest, which is described in spiritual, not earthly terms. Now to our third point, what Jesus says about Peter. This is a very troubling passage to some is because Jesus entrusts Peter with a phenomenal amount of authority. Let me highlight what I mean. First, Jesus calls Peter the rock, verse 18. Second, he is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, verse 19. Third, we're told that whatever Peter binds in heaven will be bound on earth. Wow, that is a lot of authority given to someone who we know, as the Gospels continue, has his fair share of weaknesses. But a few comments on each. Peter, the name Peter, you may be aware of this, is, there's a real play on words. Uh, the word Peter in Greek is Petros. The word rock in Greek is Petra. So the passage reads with a little pun, no doubt intended, uh, you, Petros, are, pardon me, let me find my notes here. The per, Petros, is, Petros, Peter, is the person, is the Petra, the rock, or the foundation upon which the church has been built. With apologies for that little stumble. Some have tried, made, tried to make sense of this passage by saying, wait, 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 that's not really Peter the person. It's instead what Peter says about Jesus that he is the Christ. That is the foundation, not the person, Peter. But the plain meaning of the sentence is simply what we read, that the person, Petros, is the Petra or rock or the foundation upon which the church will be, get, will be built. Second phrase, to you are given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, you may have seen uh, the depictions of uh, the pearly gates in cartoons. And you always see Peter as the gatekeeper, letting some people in and kicking some people out. After all, he has the keys to the kingdom. It makes, us, makes him sound like a gatekeeper. However, that portrayal of Peter outside the pearly gates is based upon a misunderstanding of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not the afterlife. The kingdom of heaven depicts God's rule on this earth here and now. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is amongst you. He taught us to pray, may thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not up there. The kingdom of heaven simply describes God's rule. And Peter is given the authority to uh, guide God's people here on earth. And this is further reinforced by the third phrase. You are given the keys of the kingdom in order to loose what is loosed in heaven and bind what is bound in heaven. That is simply an image for teaching. You may recall Jesus' critique of the Pharisees. You bind your people with heavy burdens. In other words, the Pharisees are bad teachers. They tell God's people to do things that God didn't tell them to do. Peter is to, be, to do that same job, to bind and to loose, only to do it better. These three phrases, Peter, the rock on whom the church is built, is given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, able to loose and bind, tell us simply that Peter has a unique role to guide and teach the early church. And that's exactly what we find happening in the first chapter, the first half of the book of Acts. 
Peter the Apostle is the central figure in the early church. He leads the way in opening the church to non-Jewish believers. He leads the way in overturning long-standing kosher food laws. He looses some things that had bound God's people. Jewish food laws do not apply to you or me. Why? Because Peter did what is described here. He loosed some things, and some things he bound. In his first sermon, he tells us what we must do to be saved. Acts chapter 2, he says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And that is binding. What must you do to be saved? What Peter said, repent, be baptized, for the forgiveness of sins and receive the Holy Spirit. We should not ignore passages like this one, which seem to give an inordinate amount of authority to an earthly figure, a frail person like Peter. That has always been the case. While Christ remains the head of his church, he entrusts earthly leadership of his church to frail human beings. Let me summarize and then let me draw three implications. The passage teaches us who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the Son of God, the one through whom God will finally bring about his promised redemption. This passage teaches us about the nature of the church, specifically its conquest, with his spirit, which is spiritual, otherworldly in its nature, not this world, certainly not political in nature. Third and finally, this passage teaches us about the leadership of the church, which is surprisingly earthly, not spiritual. Peter is a person entrusted with a phenomenal amount of authority, that despite some very glaring weaknesses. Now three implications, very briefly. Implication number one. We grow in our knowledge of ourselves as we grow in our knowledge of Christ. Peter's declaration about Jesus was followed by Christ's declaration about Peter. You are the rock. Over the past couple of weeks, I've referenced a biography about Billy Graham and, and Ruth Graham. Among other things, Graham had a phenomenal sense of purpose, a profound sense of his own calling. He knew who he was, he knew what he was called to do. And for Graham, just as it was for Peter, his understanding of himself, his confidence in his own calling came from his understanding and his intimacy with Jesus. In order to know who you are, we must know whose we are. In order to know what we are called to, we must know the one calling us. Self-examination will only get you so far. Our self-examination must be coupled with worship of, faith in, and obedience to Christ. Implication number two. We must remember the spiritual, otherworldly nature of the victory promised to the people of God. The first disciples' vision of Christ's redemption was limited to this world. Specifically, they envisioned Christ's redemption in terms of political restoration, and they were disappointed. Our vision of Christ's redemption may be limited to this world as well. 
maybe the restoration of a loved one or some other redemption that is realized in this world. If our vision of Christ's redemption is limited to this world, we will be disappointed. This passage promises us victory over the grave, a delayed victory, a victory enjoyed in the age to come. Third and final implication. In light of Jesus' plan for the leadership of his church, which is surprisingly earthly, I want to encourage you to pray for the pastors in your church. I think most of us call this church your home. Uh, if you're watching online, uh, pray for the pastors of your church if this church is not your home. If I were the Lord, I would not have entrusted the leadership of his people to people like the disciple Peter. And I certainly wouldn't have entrusted the leadership of God's people to people like me. But God's ways are not our ways. And he has entrusted his church to frail people. And we need your prayers. So three implications. Peter's declaration of Christ, followed by Christ's declaration about Peter, teach us that we grow in our understanding of who we are as we grow in our understanding of who he is. Second, in light of the otherworldly victory that Jesus promises his people, we must remember that our conquest is over the grave. Our victory will be realized in the age to come. Third and final implication, in light of the surprisingly earthly leadership that Jesus establishes for his church, I want to encourage you to pray for your pastors, because they need it. Please rise.